happen. Um, we are just like very briefly into into Luke. Before I say this, I've been I did a lot of research on this, which is not necessarily related to the sermon at all. But I just thought it was so cool that I'm going to tell you. So on the front of the pamphlet is this photo of Jesus teaching in the synagogue, and that thing is in Poland, in the longest running like longest producing salt mine in the world. It's been like mined for 700 years or something. And uh, there's a bunch of chapels and St. Kinga's Chapel is there. It's this lady, you know, she was like supposed to marry somebody in Poland, but there wasn't salt and she wanted to have salt as a dowry. So she goes to Hungary and chucks her wedding ring into like a salt mine and then comes back and is like, dig up this rock for me and break it open and her engagement ring is there and then this humongous salt mine is underneath their feet and they're like, oh, it's a, it's a miracle of God. Anyway, so down in this thing, it's like 300 feet below the surface, 330 something feet. There's these three chandeliers that are carved out of salt and it took three guys 67 years to carve these chandeliers. It's beautiful, you should look it up. Anyway, I just thought that was really interesting and I like rocks and geology, so. There you go. Anywho, so we're going to do a quick like recap of where we are in Luke leading up into chapter four. So in chapter one, we see the foretelling of the birth of Christ and of John the Baptist. So Mary's pregnant with Jesus, Elizabeth's pregnant with John, and uh, this story recognizes the significance of Jesus because we see John doing the whole leapy thing, you know, in Elizabeth's womb. And so we see consent and obedience and faith of Mary, and we recognize the humanity of Jesus, and thus us all, in the human virgin birth of Christ. So we talked about that a lot in Advent. And then we jump into chapter 2, where we read about the birth of Jesus, you know, Epiphany and all, we're like in the third week of Epiphany. And we read about Jesus as a boy in the temple. And then Luke like zooms forward in time. He's like, yeah, Jesus was like 12. Boom, now he's like 30 something. He like skips all of puberty for Jesus, which I think would have been interesting to learn about because I, I firmly believe that Jesus was probably a really stinky, gross dude, you know, like any other human. Yeah, exactly. And I think it would be great if we thought about that. I was like, yeah, Jesus Pitts probably stank. You know what I mean? Anyway, so now er, John is a prophet and is leading this renewal type movement where all kinds of people are coming to be baptized. The poor, the sick, uh, tax collectors and soldiers, they're all coming to the river and are being baptized by John and they're all dedicating themselves to this new way of life. And so chapter three uh, also contains the message of the imprisonment of John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus and the genealogy of Jesus, Luke's genealogy. So around 1500 years before Jesus, uh, the people of God inherited the promised land and are crossing through the Jordan River and God gives them a responsibility God says to them that they are to serve only God and they're lo- to love their neighbor and to pursue justice as a collective. And what happens all throughout the Old Testament? Do the people of God do this thing? No, no, they don't. Uh, they screwed it up. So John is calling them to come back through the river. 
and to rededicate themselves to God and participate in the thing that God is calling them to do. And so this is no different for us, by the way. You know, that's what we do when we are called into baptism and dunked into the river. We're doing this thing that the people of God, of God have been doing for a really long time. So Jesus is baptized. He comes to the river. John's like, oh no, I can't do this. I'm not the one. And Jesus is like, yeah, you are my guy. Dunk me. And so he gets baptized. And then we hear these words, this is my son whom I love and in whom I'm well pleased. And this like takes us back to Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. And so if you were a biblical scholar then, you would have probably known what Jesus was saying was like something from a really long time ago, and it's really, really important. And so God promised a Messiah who would suffer and die on Israel's behalf in Isaiah 42. And Jesus is effectively saying, I'm that dude. I'm that guy that God told you about like a super long time ago. This is what I'm here to do. So now, boom, we're in chapter four. And we read about the temptation of Jesus right before this, uh, this section that we're in. Jesus has just come out of the wilderness. And he's like replaying the 40-year journey of the people of God, being uh, like walking through the wilderness in exile. And you guessed it, the people of Israel failed when they were stuck in the desert. And Jesus is redoing this and has succeeded by trusting God and not falling victim to the tempter. And this marks Jesus as the one who will carry the story of Israel forward. So, boom, we're here. We're in verse 14. And Jesus is going back to his hometown called Nazareth. So he made this long trek goes back to see all of his, like, his stomping grounds, you know, and he's in the region of Galilee, and our passage today contains the first public words of Jesus's ministry in Luke's gospel. So he picks up the scroll of Isaiah, and from, he reads from what we now know to be Isaiah 61, which is what we read in the Old Testament passage, and he's reading the first two verses, basically, but he doesn't read them exactly. He like changes it up a little bit, which people who studied the scroll of Isaiah would have known like, oh, he's sort of saying this scroll, but he's paraphrasing sort of. And so Isaiah 61 depicts the salvation that comes to the suffering people of God. And Jesus is saying, I am here to declare good news. I'm here to declare good news to the poor. That's how he starts. And uh, we talked about poor in our discussions, and I asked you to like broaden your perspective of what poor means. Poor doesn't always mean like financially poor, but I do remember the first time that I realized that my family was financially poor. Um, So for as long as I could remember, my dad was a roofer. He would come home, Roofer or roofer, I don't know how you say it. Caleb gets on my case all the time because I'm like, oh, look at that roof. It's shake shingles. And he's like, it's a roof. Like, what are you talking about? Anyway, uh, so he, he was a roofer, roofer. Now I'm self-conscious about the way I'm saying this word. And he would come home every day smelling like asphalt, like tar and sweat. It was really gross, but it's like this memory I have now. You know what I mean? Similar to like when I smell cow manure, I remember my dad saying, it smells like money, you know? It's gross, but it's, it's like nostalgic. Anyway, so he, for as, as long as far as my memories go back, he was working as a roofer. And he worked at this company 
And my grandma was like the front desk lady. And a good family friend of ours from the church was like a financial administrator. And my dad was a crew leader. And I would go in. It was such a good time. My grandma always had candy. Like, it was great. And then uh, when I was eight, my dad got let go from that position. Had a lot to do with like interpersonal relationships between blah, blah, blah and client whatever. And my dad it was the one who ended up getting let go. And the thing was that he got let go on my birthday when I was eight. My birthday is on October 22nd, and my mom's is on the 24th. So two days before my mom's birthday and on my birthday. And I didn't know it at the time because I was having an amazing birthday party. Did the whole run through the streamers thing. My mom makes really cool cakes. There were presents. My family was there. And I had zero idea until like a week later when my parents were like, sad, you know, and I was trying to figure out what was going on. I was now nine, and I was like, ah, I am, I can ask this question and see what the heck is going on, and I realized why my parents were a little bit more melancholy a couple days before, because my dad had received the news that no person with three kids and a wife who's providing for wanted to hear that he'd lost his job, and I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know that that meant our budget was changing and the things we were buying was changing and the things that I could do extracurricular wise was changing. I had no idea. All I knew was that my dad got to spend more time at home with us. And I was like, uh-huh, score. My dad was home when we came home from school. And le- that only happened in the winter time because it's really not safe to be on a roof in the winter. And so I was like, it's like winter all the time. This is amazing. And little did I know that my family, my parents, were under so much stress, so much pressure, because they had to figure out how to make it work without, my mom didn't work because she was with us. And so there was so much under the surface that I did not, I did not know. And I really didn't learn that we were poor until Christmas came around. So a few months later, we were sitting, I, I knew there was like stress, right? You can tell. And my parents kept telling us, Christmas might look different this year. Christmas might be different this year. And I was like, okay, cool. (laughs) What does that mean? Mystery. And uh, Christmas morning comes around, and I was so confused because all these people came to our house and dropped off tons of gifts. Like, seriously, half the tree was covered. Like, I, it was amazing. I was like, Santa is real. <laughs> like, this is so cool. All these people were giving us this stuff. My parents were crying, you know, in the back, sort of, and I was like, whoa, this is such a blessing. Look at this. God loves us, you know, and I was so excited. There was this, like, the floor was covered in red and green and shiny things, and I was so excited to, like, rip into this stuff, you know, And my family did the whole one person opens a, you know, it takes forever. Yeah, it took like hours to open all that stuff. And we had more things that I could even play with in one day, you know, it was wild. And so I learned later that our church took up a collection and bought things for us because my parents couldn't. And there was a clear line of demarcation between all of these bright, fancy, mounted packages and then the ones that my parents spent a lot of time wrapping. There are a few of them, and then there were all these other ones, and I could tell that my parents were ashamed of the fact that their little pile of presents was so small on the floor, and then all these people brought all this stuff, you know? Anyway, 
So it took us so long to open them up, and my mind, as an eight, newly nine-year-old, was racing with things about, like, why did they bring us these gifts? Like, why couldn't my parents do this? Why are my parents crying? Who, why are there groceries in the gifts? Like, groceries are, like, a normal thing that you buy on, like, a Tuesday, not on Christmas. Like, why do I have boxes of food? That doesn't make sense. Could my parents not afford the necessities? Are we the poor ones? And I realized that, yeah, we were. We were in this season of my life where we needed help providing for our basic needs. And that really shaped the way I moved forward in my life. I was moving into middle school and got free and reduced lunches for a long time. And I realized, wow, like this makes a difference. I feel different than other people because I know their parents can take them to Disney and can pay for stuff, and my parents can't. So I just told you a story about poor as a monetary thing, but in Hebrew culture, being poor wasn't always about money. It was more about a social status thing. So poor people would have included women, sick people. Uh, It would have included children and pretty much anyone on the margins, like sojourners and foreigners would have been poor. There's a pretty wide umbrella. Pretty much if you weren't like a guy with money, you were like poor. And so the definition of poor also includes those with money though. Like tax collectors would have been considered poor because of their social status. Everyone hated those guys. And so they were poor. So Jesus is talking about anyone who is outside, anyone who's on the margins. And so Jesus reads that he's here to proclaim freedom to those on the outside. And Jesus is saying that he's here to free people from sickness, from oppression, from shame, from their past, from all this stuff. And he is here so that we can be a part of the new kingdom of God and that it has become a reality through the person of Jesus. So Jesus came to proclaim good news to my family and thankfully, two-ish years later from when my dad had lost his job, he decided he was going to start his own roofing company because he'd been doing it for so long and knew it so well. And for the past 15 years, my dad has been, has been running Trinity Contracting Company, and he still comes home smelling like tar and asphalt and sweat. And he works hard doing it, and is it easy? Absolutely not. Are there hard years? Yeah. And my parents, they say, uh, they pray for hail, which they tell me not to tell anybody that, so don't tell anybody I told you that. But they say it's pennies from heaven, you know, because then they get jobs, you know, and they're like, we just pray that it avoids our friends and family. And I'm like, this seems problematic. Anybody know? Okay. But anyway, so what's going on? Why is Jesus doing this thing? I think that this is like Jesus' inauguration, like his inaugural address of sorts, because Jesus is outlining his politic of life. And the meaning of politics has changed a lot over time, and the way it's practiced has changed a lot over time. But the most basic concern about politics is about the ordering of relationships. How do we interact with those around us? And for clarity, I'm not talking about Republicans or Democrats or our political system that we work and live in right now as we know them today, but I am talking about a political reality in a broad sense. 
So if you've ever read anything by John Howard Yoder, probably not unless you went to school for this because it's really boring to read his books. It's really dense. Uh, I love him though. (laughs) But he wrote this book called The Politics of Jesus. And in the book, he talks about how Jesus brought with him (laughs) Jesus brought with him an alternative to the powers that be, an alternative to mainstream politics. So Jesus creates an alternative to the social context for our political life. And Yoder says, if we understand politics as having to do with how human beings order our social lives, then Jesus presents a clear alternative to the politics of power and dominion. So in fact, if power uh, is, if those in power misunderstood the true meaning of politics, then we see what we see today, right? We see exploitation, and we see people on the margins, and that is a misunderstanding of, of what Jesus has come to do. And so the politics of domination is not the intention that God has for what it, co- what it means to be human beings socially. So Jesus is talking about politics as a social transformation, It's about a way we live together, the way we get along. It's about people, and it's central to the practice of Christianity. And so we believe that God has something to say about our lives, and God has something to say about the way we interact with those around us, and not just the way we interact with people, but the way we interact with the very earth that we are standing on. All of these relationships are being shifted, like flipping on its head because of what Jesus has come to say. And so we open ourselves to God's ordering of our life and our relationship. And in that case, the incarnation is the, the embodiment of God is a deeply profound political statement. The life of Christ is a political statement, one that reorders our relationships with God and with other people. And so Jesus' political identity doesn't begin with like a party affiliation, you know. He's not like, I am contrary to Caesar, while what he does is his his identity begins with his baptism earlier in Luke. And as we recapped, Jesus was immersed into the waters of creation, and the heaven opened up, and the Spirit descended upon him and said, you are my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. And from here, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness and overcame the powers that be, overcame the corruptors of politics, which are materialism, power, self-interest, and he didn't fall victim to those things like the people of Israel did a long time ago. But he came out of the wilderness with a, a clear identity and clarified his message and the direction of his life. And he speaks that when he's in the synagogue. He's empowered by the Spirit and then goes to teach the thing that he has come to do. So the text says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And these words are describing the politics of Jesus, which is good news. Good news to the poor, release to the captive, sight to the blind, letting the oppressed go free. He's declaring the Lord's favor as the building blocks of his politic. And the Lord's favor doesn't have any limits. There are no restrictions. It's just ushering in social transformation. And they're not promises. It's a reality. Like Jesus didn't say, I'm going to do this thing in the future sometime, hopefully. 
Jesus said, I'm doing the thing right now, and I want you to do the thing with me today. So, like I said, Jesus was not exactly quoting Isaiah. He was adding his own things, and he's describing the character of his ministry moving forward so that all of us know what Jesus is going to do in the future has to do with good news to the poor and sight to the blind and release to the captive, you know, the whole shebang. And so everything Jesus does is grounded in this. And the politics of good news are revealed in his healing of the sick and casting out demons and forgiving sins and feeding people and raising dead people. All that stuff is the very foundation is the good news that he said way at the beginning of his ministry. And so if you look around, there's stories of hurt everywhere. Look in your life. I know that there's pain in our lives because we live, we exist in a sinful world and that means that there's pain. And each one of us has felt poor in some way. Maybe your family faced a financial struggle like mine did in my past or maybe that is your present. Maybe your family is currently facing financial struggle. And maybe there's relationships in your life that you wish could be reconciled and that you have done the work of reconciliation and yet there's still brokenness. Or maybe you haven't done the work of reconciliation and there's guilt because there's still brokenness. Maybe you've lost people this year. We have lost people this year, all of us. And we face sickness together. We've gone through a lot in the past two years. Maybe you regret something that you did and maybe you regret something that you have not done yet. If we choose to look at the pain that we hide deep down in the places within us, then we would realize that we are poor and we are outsiders in one way or another. It's really easy to look outside and say, those people there are poor. Those are the ones who don't have houses or can't find food. But maybe if we look deep down and we say, well, I'm also emotionally poor, maybe I am relationally poor as well, then we realize we're all the same and we all need this core building block of Jesus's ministry. And so the politic of Jesus, this good news is all encompassing. No one gets left out. There's no qualifiers. There's no conditions. There's no boundaries. There's no favorites, literally nothing. You don't influence the politic of Jesus based on if you're good or if you're bad. And Jesus doesn't care about what you have done or what you've left undone. There's just open arms always. And so Jesus' message is simple. Are you poor? Are you a captive? Are you blind? Are you the oppressed? Then go in the Lord's favor. The poor and the blind are like not favored by God because they're more righteous The poor and the blind are favored by God because God is righteous and God is the good one. And so most of us in here might identify as a Christian, uh, which roughly translates to little Christ, you know, in Greek, the whole thing, which means that we seek to follow and act like Christ. We try to shape our identity and our going about in the world to look like Christ. And so In that case, what is our response to what this passage has to say? What are we to do about this thing? It's one thing to like read it and say, yeah, I am the poor one, yeah, and then to just sit there and be done. But Jesus calls an action out of us through his ministry. 
And so we do the same thing as what Jesus does. Jesus asks, where is their hurt? Who is hurting? And then does something about it. And so we ought to do the same. We should walk around in our lives and look for people who are hurt. Those who are poor, those who are on the outside, those people need response of genuine connection and genuine compassion. And we would listen to the needs of others before giving them unsolicited advice. And our power should come from our cooperation and our collaboration together to usher in this new kingdom that Christ is calling us to. And so if we approach these situations in the posture of Jesus, we would have the courage to stand with one another when they're in their pain, even if we don't have things to say and we don't have the solutions. And we might also have the courage to let other people stand with us in our pain and in our poorness. And we would then look much more like Christ and we would be ushering in this new kingdom that was inaugurated when Christ was baptized and then spoke in the synagogue. We would look like the thing that Jesus was saying. And this is the core of Jesus' ministry. And this is the kind of politic that we should practice and we should make our own as well. And so Jesus said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So let's not let the scripture go in one ear and out the other as we walk out of these doors today. So, if you'll pray with me, we'll wrap this thing up. God, thank you for today. Thank you for my friends. I pray that you would give us the courage and the ability to look within ourselves and to see where we are poor. And I pray that you would give us grace and courage to stand with one another in the ways that they are poor and to allow them to stand and carry us. I pray that we would have eyes to see the world around us and that we wouldn't be blind to the ways in which there are people on the outside in our society. And I pray that you would give us the means uh, to reach in and stand with people on the outside and offer them a new reality, the one that you have spoke about uh, in scripture and in your ministry. It's in your name we pray, amen.